0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All this week, Aloha Tower is being lit up in blue lights in a nod to Autism Awareness Month. We talked to the Autism Society of Hawaii about the challenges of acceptance in our communities of those with special needs. Disturbing video of a bus driver punching and kicking a special needs student surfaced in television news reports this month. Dennis Marr is the father of a child with special needs. He says it was hard to watch.
1: I have to assume that it was done during Autism Acceptance Month for a reason, or it could have just been coincidental timing because the litigation that was involved probably surrounding it but that long. Every time I see things like this or hear things like this, it's just, it really breaks my heart because these individuals didn't ask to be born With the challenges that they have it's really unfortunate that people can't look past the challenges that they have just to see that they're really remarkable individuals that they truly are they're so pure and and innocent that it's too bad everybody wasn't like that you know Mm -hmm. They, they don't look at people differently they don't judge and it's unfortunate that you sit back and it's almost ironic that they don't judge people but they're constantly judged they love people unconditionally and people love conditionally. They're looked at in a way that they really shouldn't be, because if you really dig down into each of these individuals, they're unique, and that's why they're, the puzzle piece is, is the symbol of autism, because they're so unique. Uh, it would either be a puzzle piece or a, or a snowflake because each are so individual, but each of them bring their individual strengths to the table too. And it's just a matter of getting to know the individual and finding out what those are. I have a friend whose son is not very high functioning, but if you asked him what day of the week it was 10 years ago on May 15th, he'll tell you exactly what day of the week it was. He can tell you what his schedule is for the next four or five years if he knows what his schedule is. And he'll remember the day, the time, where it was how it was it's unique but that individual probably will never be able to live on his own and independently so you know if you needed somebody to schedule stuff max would be the guy (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he's not going to forget and he'll remind you and remind you and remind you tomorrow one o'clock that's the day we do this right my son looks at things in in a very open way and he's very non-judgmental so when he hears negative things he gets kind of taken back and you got to kind of explain to him that sometimes things are like that he doesn't dislike people there's a few kids in his class he didn't really like but they were very disruptive he doesn't like disruptive <laughs> and he doesn't like disrespect and so many kids his age are so disrespectful to teachers it's really unfortunate See, it's funny you know I think some of the atypical kids could learn from the kids with autism on how to actually handle themselves and conduct themselves. You should just treat people in a, in a kind way, but people have to be trained not to abuse people, which is kind of scary. You know, The individual basically was, was probably what they call stimming, so they self-stimulate. They'll flap their hands around, or um, sometimes they'll make noises, things like that. And to some people, that can be irritating. And I don't know what actually drove that whole incident that occurred on the bus, but it was enough where the bus driver stopped the bus and actually felt the need to stop the bus and get up and go after this individual, and probably knowing that the individual had special needs. Because I can't imagine that was the first day that bus driver was driving that particular bus and that particular individual. So there's probably been incidents before it. Sometimes, you know, the individual might have been overwhelmed, had an overwhelming day and was going into a meltdown. But a lot of the times when they go into a meltdown they may hurt themselves or they may just make a lot of noise and not where it doesn't really affect others but other other than the fact that the environment may be disrupted because they're having that meltdown. But the unfortunate thing is many of them will do self harm when they're having a meltdown, which is not good either.
0: Well, I guess the training then needs to be not just uh, how you handle the situation, but I guess there's strategies involved. You have
1: to learn how to diffuse those situations. My son used to have violent meltdowns when he was younger. The, The way I equate it is to Pandora's box. Once Pandora's box is open, you have to figure out a way to close Pandora's box. Otherwise, that individual cannot move on in a normal sense. And we used to do that through distraction, something he likes. But over time, he kind of learned, because he's really smart, that, okay, you're just distracting me from (laughs) what I'm upset about, and that's not going to work anymore. So over, over the period of time, it basically became a situation where we needed to find other means. And unfortunately, we ended up having to get police involved a few times, because it got so bad that he was threatening to hurt others or himself and at that point it's a situation where as much as we didn't want to because we don't want to make HPD the bad guy we needed them to be there because I was concerned for my own self that I might hurt him in my attempts to restrain him or stop him from hurting himself or somebody else and that's the last thing I want to do is hurt my child while they're having a meltdown over something that they don't quite understand or, in their mind, really upset them, you know, because we have to legitimize it. If they're that upset, there's a reason for it. It's not just for fun.
0: Yeah, they're not doing this on purpose, yeah.
1: Right. So trying to find that happy place. The way to do it is working with the family or the school, and everybody should be on the same page, especially when they're in, in a public transportation situation because of the volatility of that potential situation at any given time, because there could be a kid on the the bus that's atypical that may not like the way that child behaves or may pick on that child or bully that child because of the fact that they're special needs. So it's a matter of the bus driver being able to control that as well, and that might have been why that individual was having a meltdown that day. Maybe somebody did pick on him, and he got so upset he might have been making noise. I honestly, I don't know what drove that whole situation. And there's not a lot of information out there as to why. But it's everybody kind of being aware, okay, while we're not expecting you really to do anything, we are kind of expecting that let's not add to a potential volatile situation by egging that individual on or intimidating or bullying or picking on or making comments to that individual that is going to get them upset and and make an, a situation escalate to the point where maybe it did that day
0: when we talk about autism month autism awareness autism acceptance i mean what do you feel are the biggest barriers
1: i think a lot of people know that there's children with autism out there now it's it's not like it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago where the numbers were only just starting to grow because it's now one in 56 births is an individual with autism, which is an alarming rate. When my son was diagnosed, the statistic at that time was one in 151. And that was about 13 years ago. So the numbers have grown exponentially now that they understand autism more and there's more early intervention and testing and things like that to, to find out what the individual's challenges are that before people didn't know. They didn't know what to call it. They used to call it Asperger's when they were higher functioning like my son. But now it all falls under this big umbrella of autism.
0: And as a parent, you know, I mean, your child is growing up. What are your fears, you know, when it comes to holding down a job or finding a place to stay?
1: My son has really come a long, long way. If you asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have been afraid that he wouldn't be able to graduate high school with a regular diploma, that he would not be able to assimilate himself to Society and be able to hold a job, and that he would be dependent on me for the rest of his life, much like my brother is dependent now on me and my brothers and sisters now that my parents have passed. My youngest brother has Down syndrome and is legally deaf and blind, and my sister and I are now his guardians, along with my brother, other brothers, but we're the primary guardians here in Oahu. So I understand what those challenges can be because I'm dealing with my brother. And while I don't mind having to take care of my brother, I know what a challenge it can be uh, trying to find a suitable home for him. He'll never be able to work, but fortunately for my son, he will. But there's families much like my friend and his son Max that won't have that opportunity, and they're going to have to worry about okay, when he gets out of high school, I'm not going to say graduates because it's really not graduating. They get given a certificate saying, okay, you've kind of maxed out your time with us and now we have to kind of move you along to the next chapter of your life.
0: Are there Uh, enough facilities out there uh, to support mm, this segment of our community? Are there enough homes where they can be placed in or not?
1: No, that's, that's a huge issue right now for many, many parents that have teenagers and young adults that are on the spectrum that are unable to work. There's not enough housing facilities. There's not enough programs that can be provided at no cost. And the issue is the cost. You can get service providers to basically be with your child all day long, but it will break your bank and somebody on retirement more often than not will not be able to afford it. They're relegated to the fact that they're going to be the permanent caregiver for that individual for the rest of their lives as long as they can physically, emotionally, and financially do it. Because at some point, you can put them in the adult foster system. And that's what we do with my brother. He's in, like, the adult foster care system where he lives with another family, and they do all the caring for him and, and whatnot. But we're very involved and help with the financial support where needed. The occupational thing is number one because so many kids are getting out of high school and a lot of them while they may be challenged and and have severe special needs they've got skills it's a matter of tapping into what those skills are but they're socially awkward so trying to get through the interview process is not easy for them Mm
2: -hmm.
0: when you talk about acceptance you're talking about also just more understanding and patience.
1: Exactly. You know, it's now it's not just being aware of, of the fact that individuals with autism are out there is accepting the fact that they may stim when they're out or, or they, may, they may sound a little bit different when they talk to you. And, and in some cases, it could be in a childish way or very repetitive, but they're communicating nonetheless. And it's being able to accept that a lot of people when when you're out with a young child that's on the spectrum having a meltdown they're going to give you all kinds of looks and they're they're just oh my god get your kid under control it's accepting the fact that maybe you don't know what's going on in that child's life and it may not just be a spoiled little brat it could be a child that has autism that's having a meltdown and the parent is struggling almost as much as that individual that's on the floor having the meltdown
3: so
0: maybe not so quick to judge to just be more understanding and patient and kind
1: yeah. don't judge don't look at you know you, if you walk in a, a mile in somebody else's shoes you really shouldn't criticize them because you really don't know what's going on in their life before my son I think I probably was guilty of that too but I have a, a whole different perspective on it now and I and it, it's hard to get people's perception of things to change and to get them to accept and not automatically judge, because we live in such a judgmental world that it's just human nature to do it and not to uh, give the individual the benefit of the doubt about what's going on. Instead of looking and criticizing somebody, just turn around and say, hey, do you need some help? Don't automatically assume that it's a spoiled child. Maybe Mm -hmm. that parent could use some help and could use a break, and, and sometimes an outside person intervening will get that individual to stop because it's somebody different. When they're in their comfort zone with people, they're more apt to misbehave. Just like your kids. Your kids are going to misbehave more with you than when they go out and they're with their friends because those people are not their parents where they're not sure what they can get away with.
0: So again, if you come across a parent in a difficult situation with a child, ask if there is something you can do to help. That's advice from Dennis Moore, head of the Autism Society of Hawaii, who has a son and an adult brother with special needs. And if you happen to drive by Aloha Tower this week, know that it will be lit up in blue through the end of April in honor of Autism Month.
4: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop-up installations across the museum. Now on view, HonoluluMuseum.org. Here on Hawaii Public Radio, we strive to bring you the best of both worlds. We keep you informed and entertained with national programs like Marketplace and Fresh Air, And we also keep you connected to our community with our local shows, like The Body Show, Bite Marks Cafe, and Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our programming is hosted by HPR's own staff. To learn more about all of our programs, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. <laughs> In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for a multi-talented individual whose heyday was in the 50s and 60s. He was a comedian, a radio personality, and a sometimes TV and movie actor. Our mystery talent was born in Waco, Texas, and served in Pongo Pongo during the Second World War, where he learned the Samoan language well enough to serve as an interpreter. He fell in love with the Hawaiian Islands during the post-war years and began his local radio career on KPOAAM in 1954. Paradise of the Pacific Magazine called him the Jackie Gleason of Hawaii. His calling card was a gift for mimicry. His impersonations of well-known voices like Louis Armstrong and Clark Gable were soon supplemented with an array of local accents. He landed small parts in movies, including Blue Hawaii, Kona Coast, and The Devil at 4 o'clock. He had his own TV show in the 70s, and this morning we are looking for his name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Thank you.
4: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NairitHawaii.com.
0: More than 90 scholars across the island signed on to a brief about education justice. What's that all about, you might ask? Well, we talked to University of Hawaii at Manoa's educational psychologist Lois Yamauchi and sociologist and lecturer Colleen Bannock. They maintain it is students in the rural areas in special education and the native Hawaiians and other minorities who suffered the most during the pandemic. They cautioned about investing too much in technology and not enough in certified teachers for the long run.
5: Well, we were very concerned about how children and teachers are faring during the pandemic. And of course, everyone was kind of taken by surprise that we had to suddenly transition to online education. And then we started hearing about sort of the inequities and the problems that come with online education. So we understood that We have to do what we have to do, but we are concerned now that with the perpetuation of, you know, online education even going forward, that we're losing some kids, that they're they're not coming to school, they're not, you know, people are losing track of them, and we're worried. We we are worried that um, students who are already um, behind or not necessarily behind, but I would say, that aren't getting kind of a fair shake at things. There are inequities in our state and, and this is, is making it worse. So, um, and a a number of scholars, we've been worried about, um, children in our state who need more support perhaps than they're getting. And so we decided to, um, do this research brief. And our sister organization, um, In California did a similar research brief and so we um, we also we we looked at the research that they had done and we added to it um, local research or at least research that focuses on Hawaii
0: well Colleen you know I know the most recent developments the school board uh, agreed to offer free uh, summer school education in order to I guess bridge you know the digital divides that that kids who were falling behind in academics can maybe get back up to speed for the fall. I mean, you know, what struck you as you folks were trying to put this together?
6: That's great that the school district is offering free summer school, and that will definitely help. The big thing I think that we were concerned about, and then you know, really noticed in the data from prior studies, is that online education, even before the pandemic, was not so great in terms of outcomes. So what several large-scale studies have shown is that in terms of comparing online schooling, and so some of that being completely online and some of that being more of a blended approach, a hybrid, some online, some in person, the students both in terms of state standardized test scores and graduation rates were lower than you know, traditional public schools. And that was particularly for schools that were designed to be online. So already prior to the pandemic, online schools were performing worse than traditional public schools. So then we have a pandemic where all of a sudden we have to switch. And our schools, most of them, both the teachers and the schools, were not set up for that, right? So we had to switch really quickly. We know that some students didn't have Internet access or some of the devices. And so the DOE put a lot of resources into that, which is, you know, really helpful and needed. And a lot of the CARES Act money went to that. But we know that still nationwide, students in low income households were nearly 10 times more likely to have engaged in little or no remote schooling than the students from more affluent households. Some of that, of course, had to do with access to devices and the, the internet, but also one of the surveys from Hawaii's um, public schools were that. Only half of the elementary teachers and 25% of middle and high school teachers were able to reach all of their students. And then 10% of elementary and 3% of middle and high school teachers responded that all of their students participated consistently in remote learning. Those numbers are particularly from last spring. Um, And so we might, there might be, you know, as time moves forward and there's more data that out there might be different data for this academic year but it's still those kind of initial pieces are really concerning in terms of who is this working for and who is it not working for
0: and Lois can you talk about the funding I don't know what bills you know you've been tracking at the legislature to advance some of this you know the bridging of the digital divide right so we
5: do know that there is a bill that has been advancing the broadband bill to try and promote universal broadband access, and so our group is very much in favor of that. We were concerned about a statement that the, that group made suggesting that all students and families of every grade level should have access to online, hybrid, or face-to-face education, so to have an option by 2030, and we didn't feel that we would want to support that kind of goal because we know that, especially for younger kids and, again, kids who are coming from lower-income neighborhoods and who are already struggling, online education doesn't serve them well. So we don't want to invest in online education and to kind of divert our attention to really high-quality education that should be face-to-face with a qualified teacher.
0: It is rather heartbreaking to see that the smaller private schools have been able to return to the classroom sooner and get on with learning, and a lot of the public school students are still you know, missing in action. There's, uh, they just aren't logging on.
5: I know it's that uh, teachers are
0: supportive
5: of our ideas, and in, in the research brief, we talk about the importance of social-emotional support from teachers and hum- humanizing education to kind of recalling how it, what it's like to have a teacher who's caring for you and you can, you know, see them. And so um, I know that, you know, teachers are supportive of this idea that when we go to schooling on the Internet, we miss, sometimes miss these opportunities to, you know, find out how children are doing. And, we, you know, it's just it's too difficult to do it for too long. I know that there are lots of support for these a lot of our ideas that
0: are in the brief. We did see the problems that they had with that online uh, learning uh, program, Acellus.
6: So that's an excellent point. We actually bring that up in the research brief in terms of Acellus and the curriculum that is used. Interestingly enough, one of the things that has come out in the prior studies of online education, is that there's a lot of the um, completely virtual schools are run by for-profit EMOs, Educational Management Organizations. And those tend to have, even though there are some district-run virtual schools, um, they tend to have very few students, while the for-profit um, educational management organizations, they have very high enrollments and high student-to-teacher ratios compared with public traditional public schools. The reason why I bring that up is that what is interesting there was uh, Connections Academy, which is one of these for-profit EMOs. They had like close to 60,000 students in just 32 schools. Their online curriculum is what some of the traditional public schools subcontract the online curriculum. So what we saw in the case of Asilis is that online curriculum was very racially biased religiously biased and historically inaccurate and so one of the things that you know we really caution against in the brief is over relying upon not only these technological solutions but also Private companies reaching in to public education—it's
0: not one size fits all, and and they're deficient. That's exactly. a problem, and I think um, in the case of Ocellus, it
5: wasn't from Hawaii and the Department of Education. When they reviewed it, they didn't—the reviewers didn't feel that it was appropriate, and yet the leadership decided to, you know, allow it. So that obviously was not the right decision. Again, it's it's the families who are already, we already see inequities, Native Hawaiians, you know, Filipino Americans, the kids in the rural areas and special education, they're already not, they tend to ha- not have qualified teachers. And so these kinds of problems are, are going to be worse for them. That's, The problem, I think, that the the scholars were very alarmed by the over technologizing education, and the effects are going to be the worst for the kids for whom we're already worried about.
0: So, this briefing is meant to be just a a kind of a word of warning um, for the decision makers, the power brokers that are trying to uh, craft budgets going forward.
6: Yes, definitely um, uh, for that. I think one of the things that, you know, in our kind of last um, group conversation or meeting amongst um, the Hawaii Scholars for um, Education and Social Justice was, you know, not wanting to see, um, well, I should back up realizing that there's definitely place for an importance in technology. At the same time, wanting to have conversations among the public, legislators, teachers, you know, basically all stakeholders to find out what is the balance that we want to see in our communities between technology and being able to hire teachers so that there's real qualified Teachers who are in our classrooms, we've had an exodus out of the teaching profession and so that we often have a shortage of teachers each year anyway. And so when we have budgets that have significantly underfunded public education, then how do we think about budgeting for the future and how much goes into technology, devices, internet connectivity and such, and how much goes into our human resources of you know, hiring. We don't yet have data privacy laws that are very robust around online schooling. And so even though the platforms that we rely upon in terms of Zoom and Google and lots of other you know, educational platforms – the data privacy laws are not very robust in terms of protecting students and their families. And so, you know, when we take a look at other information that we have out there in terms of data mining, we can get really concerned about what that might look like in terms of educational technology.
0: And then, Lois, any uh, final thoughts? Well, I just think that
5: it it often comes down to funding, and I think that, it again, we're seeing – the costs of underfunding public education in our state and yes we are you know at a budget crisis but at the same time this is a the time then we should think about how to prioritize education as everyone talks about I just think that it's time for us to really invest in our education system and find ways to fund it appropriately
0: That was UH professor and educational psychologist Lois Yamauchi and lecturer Colleen Rost-Bannock talking to us about education justice. Lulu civil beat has a new development on a story that we've reported here uh, on the conversation it has to do with efforts to help save endangered and threatened bird species on Maui uh, editor Chad Blair joins us today good morning Chad
2: good morning Catherine
0: so this story is about the Maui birds and the Maui mosquitoes
2: yeah, uh, specifically the uh, kiu as it's called, the Hawaiian name for this bird. It's a Maui parrot bill. I should, by the way, just add that this is from our Maui contributor, Jack Truesdale. So this is his story, our lead story today. And it's a good one, and it's a concerning one. Uh, it has to do with uh, the kiu, really in Terrible danger that it may be going extinct. There's only about 150 of those birds left on Maui, and the reason is you mentioned it: mosquitoes. Avian malaria is being spread, and and here's the thing that's really difficult: climate change is only making it worse. Uh, the birds try and go to higher elevations uh, on Maui, but with warmer Weather, that is making the mosquitoes follow them as well. And so they're able to continue to transmit this disease. So the government, state officials, conservationists, are trying to find a way uh, to save uh, the Kivikiu. And, you know, it was pretty heartbreaking. You know, we, we
0: did all the stories leading up to the transfer mm. of this bird, you know, from one side of the uh, island to the other in hopes of, you know, having them uh, thrive in a more pristine forest. And that was not to be... You know, I think we No, just, it, it didn't uh,
2: work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was uh, just in 2019, right? To move them from one side of Haleakala to the other. But no, the, the mosquitoes followed them. By the way, uh, apparently it just takes one bite, a single bite from a mosquito on one of these birds to infect and kill them. And so now the plan is two plans, really. One of them is under consideration, serious consideration, to actually sh- capture and ship some of these KVQ. To the mainland and and put them in zoos so that they can breed the next generation. So that's that's the first plan. And then the second plan is, well, let's do something about the mosquito population. And in that case, they're looking at uh, mosquito birth control, essentially breeding sterility into the males. And this, by the way, this is not genetically modified or anything. But the idea would be if you can sterilize the population that will bring it down. So those are the things that uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources and others are looking to do in order to save the KVQ.
0: Interesting about the mainland zoos, I remember in St. Louis, Missouri, I came across a Micronesian kingfisher that was (laughs) thriving there. And, and, you know, you lived in Micronesia, so, you know, these birds are pretty rare. And they were able to, you know, build up the population and then actually I think release them back on some of the islands. So it can work.
2: It, it can and of, of course I should just add that it's not just the kiwi-q. there are as you know a lot of endangered species including birds uh, on in Hawaii you know unique only to the islands and so hopefully by controlling the mosquito population you'd be able to uh, allow other bird populations to thrive but for now there is no safe location on Maui except for a few small patches here and there um, and apparently this is this method of using mosquito. Population control is actually a first in order to protect endangered species. That's according to Jack's article.
0: Yeah, I, I know that we have exported sterile fruit flies. We had that one facility out in Waimanalo that I think irradiated. Forgot all about that one. Yes, I know. It's, it's been years or decades. But, yeah, they sterilize the fruit flies, and they sent them to California. So there is a way to control the population, but mosquitoes, oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah. So right now, what the state is looking to do, along with conservationists, is you got to find $300,000 in order to to help facilitate this transfer of the K V Q to these mainland zoos. You're going to have to go through some regulatory hoops. There's paperwork to be involved. You're going to have to consult experts. What will the um, the new location at the zoo look like? Will it be fitting, if you will, to their needs. And by the way, they're actually aiming for January, this coming January 2022. Why? Well, that's right before the breeding season for the uh, KVQ. So that would be ideal. Uh, Department of Ag is involved. University of Hawaii is expected to, to apply for permits to help facilitate this.
0: Yeah. So are there enough uh, zoos out there that are willing to take our uh, our little birds?
2: There's, yeah, let's hope so, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple identified. I suppose it's even possible they might be able to find one uh, in Hawaii. Uh, of course, we don't have too many, uh, really, facilities for that. But uh, they are looking to protect the KDQ, the Maui Parrot Bill.
0: All right. Okay, well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair, one of Honolulu Civil Beat's editors. With today's reality check, read Jack Truesdale's story online at org.
2: Oha no ahulili, ahelili paha koi ala, ike ka umau ole ia, e ka ohu
0: This is Katherine Cruz, host of HPR's The Conversation. Whether you live in our state or far from our shores, you'll know what's happening in Hawaii with the Daily Hour exploring news, science, history, or culture in the arts. Ensure that you'll never miss a show by subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. You'll get the latest discussions right on your phone or mobile device. For details, just head to our website. Earlier in the show, we told you about a multi-talented personality who made a splash in Hawaii during the 1950s and 60s. He was born in Texas, but made Hawaii home in the post-Second World War years. He would go on to master an array of local accents and recorded comic songs like I Stay Lost with the, Chuck, uh, the Chick Floyd Orchestra. It was a patter song with the Honolulu City map providing the lyrics. He turns up in episodes of the original Hawaii Five-O, including McGarrett is Missing and Anyone Can Build a Bomb. He started on local radio in the 50s, hosting both music and talk programs, and was described in a trade magazine, Mediascope, as an easygoing conversationalist. At the peak of his career, he was Hawaii's highest paid entertainer, with radio, television, movies, and popular songs to his name, a career that took Robert Melvin Lucky Luck a long way from his Waco, Texas birthplace. And congratulations to our backyard quiz winner, John Ray of Waimea Big Island, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for participating today. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to Talk Back at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pro Service Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash covidhelp or by calling 808-207-7634.
0: This week, we are taking time out to explore a Nu'uanu cemetery and the people buried there who served in the Civil War. That pivotal point in our nation's history ended and started in the month of April. Cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon takes us to a plot of the Grand Army of the Republic, whose motto was Fraternity, Charity and Loyalty. It, among other things, supported voting rights for black veterans. Today, 35 veterans and four wives are buried in the lot in a Mauka corner near the entrance to Oahu Cemetery.
3: The Grand Army of the Republic was the name of the Union Army in the Civil War. And also, after the Civil War, it became a veterans organization, the GAR. And the GAR was all over the country. There were what they call posts all of these people that we see in this plot were ones that came here, settled here, and died here, and were buried here in this plot, the G.A.R. plot. You can see the four corners of the plot are marked by what, Catherine? Oh my gosh. Are these like (laughs) cannons? Cannons? (laughs) Yes. They're cannon muzzles. And in the 1870s, members of the G.A.R. here locally, post number, it was a California post, there wasn't enough of them to make their own with their own number, so they were attached to a California G.A.R., uh, George DeLong Post. And so uh, they formed an organization, and they were like Shriners or some other beneficial organization, and their task was to raise money to help widows, their, uh, widows of the Civil War, to help with burials of, of the men who died here, things like that to dedicate the plot. There was this big, big ceremony here with hundreds of people right here where we're standing. The whole city practically downtown closed down and all the dignitaries got in carriages, the politicians, the government officials, everybody, lots of people and and children and wives and women in carriages and they were singing patriotic songs and they came up here and they parked their buggies and things right here and they had a big ceremony to dedicate the GAR plot. Now I see that there's also a flagpole here, right? Dead center in the middle. So I I imagine you put the flags up. So every year on Memorial Day, the local civil war group comes and they raise a flag and they bring little American flags and decorate all the graves here. And then plus Hartwell and Emerson and the other ones in the cemetery.
0: I mean, I'm just scanning the graveyard here. You've got McCandless, Green, just a a hodgepodge of people. And they basically then did
3: their part in the war. And most were for the North. Is that correct? Yeah. All of these these are Union guys, Army and Navy. Okay. Confederates had their own kind of cemetery. They didn't co-mingle. They didn't co-mingle in the war. They didn't co-mingle after death. We don't have a Confederate section, but we have one Confederate guy that's buried here. Notice this plot. You see the cannon muzzle. That came off of one of the warships of King Kalakaua. He had two warships, and he donated this. It used to have chain link, you see here, that went all the way around, that linked the cannon muzzles. And they were here when I first started coming here in the 1980s, but they've deteriorated and disappeared over the years, and I don't know why, where they went. One of the more interesting markets was up here. This is the grave of John W. Francis, who was born in 1842 and died in 1914. And he served, it says on his marker, in Company K, 23rd Missouri Volunteer Infantry. So he was a very young man when he enlisted in the war. Uh, but the most interesting thing on his graveyard is the inscription on the bottom which says, Marched with Sherman to the sea. March with Sherman to the sea. That is a reference to General of the North, William Tecumseh Sherman, who was one of the top generals in the Union Army. He is most famous for his march from, from Georgia. He, he, he was coming in and he capturing all kinds of port cities in the south, and he's, he's famous for marching from Atlanta, 60,000 men, and their target was to go to the coastline to uh, capture a city there. It was called Sherman's March to the Sea. So here's John W. Francis who marched in that very famous, famous March to the street by Sherman. It's in all the Civil War history books. It's, it was a huge event, and Sherman was promoted because of it and it, it, it helped to really help to turn the tide by penetrating that far south in, this, uh, in, in the war. So he was, uh, became very well known in the Civil War. But it's interesting that they put that on there, that he marched. To me, it shows that this was a defining moment in his life in general, not just in the Civil War, but in general, it's something he was very, very proud of, to be part of that. Come and look at the markers this way. We're looking Malka. You'll see there's different markers and stones are made out of different material. Most of them are made out of very dense marble and granite, but there's a number of similar ones that look like the one I'm pointing at which is about three feet tall and maybe about uh, a foot wide and it has a, what we what is known as a shield and within the shield has the name of the person, the company they were in, and then the regiment they were in. So this is Robert Nelson. He was in Company H, 123rd New York Infantry. So he was a infantryman. But what's important about this style of marking is that these only came about after the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania in 1863. Everybody knows the story about President Lincoln uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg. He goes there and gives the Gettysburg Address. And Gettysburg, a lot of people don't think about this, but Gettysburg was at the time a pretty small town. It was a town, not a small village, but it wasn't a big city either. And Lincoln goes all the way to Gettysburg because he heard that there's so many. The casualties were in the tens of thousands. And so he wanted to go there himself. And he did, and he gave his address, the Gettysburg Address, which took all of two and a half minutes for him to give, but became one of the most famous speeches in, in American history. So he does that, but on his way, he goes to the cemetery there to see the burials of the guys who fought in the Gettysburg battle. And he realized that he was overwhelmed with the enormity of the burials and bodies that were still laying around the place, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bodies. And the little small cemetery that was in Gettysburg prior to the battle was still there, but it couldn't accommodate the mass and number of burials. So they they built a, a sort of temporary new one adjacent nearby to accommodate the bodies they could recover. That really affected Lincoln, and when he went back to Congress, he asked for a bill to create as part of the federal government that we owed these men something more than what they were getting as far as burials and things. So he helped to start the movement and follow through on this to create a government-issued marker system, an identification, burials, burials records-keeping uh, part of the government. And so he did that, and and, and thank goodness he did, because you know, he, That's what started the national cemeteries system in, in America. So every state has a, has a national cemetery, right. or so, one, more than one sometimes. So I'm looking at about what, half a dozen yeah, that, of these special tombstones. So they and probably got these because they were free. You didn't have to pay for them, as opposed to the regular kind that you see in everybody else. Maybe Um, more ornate, more ornate, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, more ornate. But definitely paying homage. Yes. uh, Post Gettysburg. Yes. Right, right. So every time you see one of these with the shield, you know this is Civil War era. Not all Civil War veterans, um, you know, got buried in a Civil War veterans plot thing in their own private cemeteries, but uh, yeah, Yeah, they were certainly eligible for the special marking. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Seeing those special tombstones and knowing about the Battle of Gettysburg, we thought it fitting to revisit President Lincoln's address. It reads like this. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggle here have consecrated far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we have say here, but he can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. Those are the words of President Abraham Lincoln on November 19th, 1863, the Gettysburg Address. It for us for this hour. Tomorrow, we close out our Civil War stories to hear about a Native Hawaiian who fought with the Colored Troops Unit. We would like to hear from you. Do you have a Civil War story to share? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments at, on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at hi conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.